day, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. By any standard, Farai Chidea has had a really distinguished career as a journalist, author, and radio host. She's covered every presidential election since 1996. She has worked for news organizations that include NPR, CNN, ABC News, 538, and more. Now she's launching a new radio show and podcast called Our Body Politic, which focuses on women of color as a super demographic in American politics. She also recently wrote a piece titled How We Save Our Body Politic, Reflections from a Black Female Journalist on America at the Precipice, which discusses how racism and sexism have affected her life and her career as a black woman in journalist. Farai is one of the most interesting thinkers I know, and I am always really excited to welcome her to our forum here on Detroit Today. Farai, great to have you with us. Stephen, I also consider you one of those amazing thinkers, and so we're like chocolate and peanut butter today. (laughs) That's right. Always great together, right? Yep. Uh, So I I actually want to start in a little different place than I had planned uh, this morning, and it, it, it has to do with what the president of the United States was talking about yesterday when he said that he wants to make sure that uh, kids in schools are not, quote-unquote, indoctrinated with uh, liberal ideology. Uh, And he was talking specifically about the teaching of slavery and the teaching of where inequality comes from in our country. And I I, I thought this morning when I was getting ready to talk to you about the things you have been talking about that have gone on in your life— and your career, and how racism and inequality have framed that life and that career. And what I really want to get you to address is this notion that a lot of people have that these are things of the past, and that people like Farai Chidea, people like Stephen Henderson, don't confront the same kinds of barriers that people did before. And that's the reason we ought not dwell too long on slavery or Jim Crow or the other things. Uh, You write that you are gratified to be launching this new radio show next month, but it's you say it's not an exaggeration to say that you were robbed of years of doing your chosen work at the level of excellence at which you operate with sufficient resources. I, I want you to talk about what that means and how that frames the work that you're trying to do right now. Absolutely. Well, let me start um, very much with your question, but with something that is brand new even to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Not the larger story, but the artifact. So my family has been really great about tracing our history, and we're lucky that we have records, you know, going well back into the early 1800s of the family. And so yesterday on Ancestry, um, my grandmother's grandfather's death record popped up. Hmm. And his name uh, is James Porter Montague. He was born into slavery, but he was probably technically not enslaved. What I mean by that is his father appears to have been a wealthy white plantation owner who kept him and raised him 
but sold his mother downriver when he was nine years old. Hmm. So can you imagine being this mixed-race kid of a plantation owner who has to say goodbye, if he even got to say goodbye, Mm -hmm. to his mother, and then be raised by the father who robbed you of that part of your childhood and of your family. But he went on to be um, a free black man who was a landowner and who was literate, which was, you know, obviously not always the case. And he imbued our family with a love of uh, learning and, and a resilience. But also he was apparently a hard man and you know, um, difficult, which mm-hmm. I can only imagine. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about my family's legacy, I think back to James Porter Montague, who also served in the Civil War and who um, probably was at war his whole life with this very construct of being a black person sure. and a black man in America and trying to raise a family. He didn't die until he was 91. So he had a good long stretch to see that his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren were uh, overall doing well. But um, my family, despite having been literate for generations, never had the chance to build wealth like white families. And so when my grandmother, his grandchild, um, worked for the Social Security Administration in Baltimore, she was an employment whistleblower who showed that in entry-level tests, all of the white people were hired before any of the black people regardless of the test scores, which mm-hmm. is a very common form of discrimination mm-hmm. that persists to today. The false meritocracy. Oh, we're going to give everyone a test. Well, that's great, but do you actually follow what the test says? Sure. And so my grandmother was blacklisted internally for seven years, denied promotions, denied raises, and I have her diaries, handwritten in spiral notebooks, talking about um, her financial anxiety. You know, here's a woman who worked hard her whole life, who raised six children, three of them veterans, and who worried about money at the end of her life and who hid it from her family because she didn't want to worry us. And that's a direct result of both the legacy of my family being denied the opportunity to buy land in white neighborhoods and communities, Mm -hmm. which would have appreciated particularly during the post-war years, and also just plain old discrimination, which I have faced. Um, And as you well know, I walked away from WNYC, led by Laura Walker. Um, I went to her office. I was being harassed by John Hockenberry, which she did. Um, He harassed, uh, verbally harassed uh, three, you know, women of African descent who were his co-hosts, so Mm -hmm. he could solo host the show. Mm -hmm. And he sexually harassed Asian women. And so I went to Laura, told her to her face. She did nothing, and now she's a a college president at Bennington. I'm frankly outraged Mm. that someone who earned $900,000 a year and who made WNYC a place that still has persistent racial problems and which underserves audiences of color, which need to know about COVID, um, to, you know, like really underserves audiences of color, is was able to walk away with her package. John Hockenberry walked away with his package and I walked away with my dignity, which is better than a swift kick in the rear, but it doesn't pay the bills. Yeah. Yeah. Um, This work that you're doing, this podcast and this attention that you're trying to give to the idea of the barriers that uh, African-Americans and African-American women in particular uh, face. Um, Talk about, the doing that in this moment when people yeah. do seem more open to the idea of discussing it, but then you still have 
this incredible pushback from the highest levels. I mean, the president of the United States saying that he wants to make sure schools don't teach history the way that it actually happened. He wants them to sort of whitewash it uh, almost literally. Uh, What is it about this moment that gives power to what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, to, to, you know, get to your point about the president, um, I have been watching this culture war unfold since before the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the reality is that when a lot of white reporters thought that Donald Trump could never win because his rhetoric was so blatantly racist, I looked at people who who I'd interviewed in the past, like Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who won for 26 years elected office as Maricopa County Sheriff while denying equal rights to Latino Arizonans. And he didn't win despite denying their rights. He won because he denied them their rights. And that was a selling point to some other voters. And he was finally voted out in 2016 and then immediately pardoned when President Trump took office. And so this, you know, there's been this level of shock, both among some citizens and some journalists, that what I call the Mexican rapist playbook Mm. is effective, that the Southern strategy of, um, you know, denying civil rights to black people is effective. But this is our history. The only people who ever won electoral college votes as independents in the 20th century were segregationists. None of the other independents won any votes, but segregationists did. And so when President Trump says, I don't want to teach slavery, it is an Orwellian, um, I mean, he didn't say that literally, but he, he's, you know, that's essentially what he's advocating for, mm-hmm. is that this is history that, that need not be taught, that is unworthy of, uh, you know, being taught because somehow it's Orwellian to teach it. Knowledge, true knowledge, is never the problem. It's the lack of knowledge and the cover-up. Mm-hmm. And this is a massive cover-up that takes place not only at the level of the president advocating for a lack of knowledge, but also some uh, school systems, particularly in places like Texas, basically forbid very straightforward recountings of history that we don't want to hear about. And so that's another whole story, but the textbook industry particularly has been compromised at times by the need to get Mm buy-in from, you know, educational systems. So I grew up in a household where I had one set of learning at school, and then I came home to my black American mother and my Zimbabwean father, and Mm -hmm. I had, you know, literature, you know, like they came before Columbus, and all, (laughs) you know, uh, uh, Beckwith's memoir about being a black you know, frontiersmen, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the early days of America. And I was always like, I want to read Lord of the Rings. And my mom was like, read some nonfiction, (laughs) fam. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, it's like uh, for black parents and a lot of other parents of color, you have to do a double shift just to teach your kids the basics of history because they're not necessarily going to be taught in school. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You talk about how you feel racism is to blame, at least in part, for you not being able to have uh, a biological child. That is a really deeply personal effect of racism and one that shows a side of racism that people don't often talk or think about that. Uh, Can you share that with our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So I came out, I guess, a year ago, year and a half ago with an article in uh, Zora, which is an um, online publication on Medium, 
uh, called Excuse Me, um, May I Raise Your Child, about the three failed adoptions I had mm-hmm. and problems with the adoption industry, because these were all women who wanted to keep their children, but who'd been kind of, I believe, cajoled into thinking they could place them. But what I didn't say was before that, when I was at WNYC, I was working in L.A. for NPR. News and Notes got shut down along with two other shows, Mm -hmm. and I got a severance. And um, I was going to, I had started exploring fertility options, and then I even, you know, started the process in New York. But I knew that to stay and work with someone as hostile and um, just, soul-killing, as John Hockenberry was, would damage me permanently. Mm. And so I walked away from the job and spent the money I'd saved for becoming pregnant and being a mother just to live on. And I think it's important to talk about it. I mean, I can't even say at this point, like I've cried so many tears, but I also have a sense of gratitude and not for John Hockenberry or Laura Walker, who protected him, but gratitude for all of the work I've done in therapy, with spirituality, with friends to process this, and that I've lived to tell the tale. Mm. And I hope to adopt older children someday, but I have given up on the the dream of having a baby or young children. I think I'm, you know, I'm 51. It doesn't mean I couldn't do it, but I also know that with my life and all of its complexity, I have a lot to give to older children, and I also understand more about how many of them need homes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to do it till after the pandemic. I'm just going to be honest about that. <laughs> right. But, but, um, but, so many black career women. There, there are two women who I know personally, who your listeners would know, but I'm not going to say their names because it's not my story, Mm. who were both heavily hazed when they got pregnant Mm. working for major news networks. Mm -hmm. One was kept off the air and told that she made people uncomfortable as if, like, pregnancy is an affliction. Um, Last thing I heard, pregnancy was how babies made it to the earth. (laughs) And it's really that the person telling her that just, wanted to see hot chicks on air and, you know, didn't consider a pregnant woman a hot chick. And that's the kind of stuff people don't talk about. Like, I'm, I am, like, I have paid so many dues, but I also never signed an NBA, never got a golden parachute, so I can say whatever I want. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. I'm talking to Farai Chidea, a journalist, author, and host of the new radio show and podcast, Our Body Politics. She wrote a piece recently titled, How We Save Our Body Politic, Reflections from a Black Female Journalist on America at the Precipice, which is hosted uh, on Medium. Uh, Farai, I want to talk about uh, the future and what you think the future is for black women of color in journalism or other professions. Things, are they getting better or easier? Uh, Here you are starting your own thing, uh, which is... Uh, encouraging in many ways, but also is a reflection, I think, of the kind of barriers that have just been thrown up for for ridiculous and racist reasons uh, in front of you. Where are we in terms of solving these problems? Well, you know, as you probably know, I have worked in philanthropy as, I mean, as you certainly know, I've worked in philanthropy mm-hmm. in recent years, and it's taught me so much about how money moves. And I think that there's a ton of opportunity where major companies in every media form, the Netflixes, the Audibles, et cetera, are looking for black t- 
talent and looking for um, talent from Latinos and Latinas and looking for talent from other people of color because there's money in it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think public radio can also learn from that. You know, public radio is not based on a for-profit system, but it still needs revenue. And serving people of color as an audience and serving the white people who want to understand that we that storytelling is not limited to white people is a moneymaker. And, um, you know, you look at Black Panther, you mm-hmm. know, and how that dominated the box office, you know, rest in peace, Chadwick Boseman. Mm-hmm. But, you know, media by, for, and about people of color can be everything from small and boutique to huge and globe-spanning. And now is our time. I believe that. It doesn't mean it's easy. We need a lot of knowledge in order to harness this opportunity. I spend a lot of time, for example, in entrepreneurial forums trying to learn more about the business side Mm. of media. Um, But this is our time. It's not an easy time, but it's a critical time. And I know so many different people who are doing tremendous things in public media, for example, whether it's you or Tanya Mosley, you know, um, all sorts of people who are who are hosting shows, Mm -hmm. sometimes starting shows, executive producing shows. And then in the for profit arena, you have people like Dream Hampton, who um, did the the doc about R. Kelly. But, you know, off the record, she's I got to spend some time with her and a mutual friend this summer. Um, she's got a lot of stuff down the pipeline, and yeah. you're going to be hearing a lot more about Dream Hampton. Yeah, and good Detroiter, you know, uh, Dream Hampton. <laughs> y- yep. So I just think that I think that it's a time where it will never be easy for people of color, um, uh, but it is a time of opportunity, and it's a time when America ne- needs to hear us, and we also need to enrich the entire pot of the stories that get told. Yeah. Okay, Farai Chidea, always great to have you here on Detroit Today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and raise a little more money. And then we're going to get the latest information on COVID-19 research and what is going on with the race to find a vaccine with Wayne State University medical researcher Paul Kilgore. We'll want to hear from you as well during that segment. Uh, What are you thinking about COVID-19 and the virus that causes it at this point? Uh, What are you concerned about in terms of a big surge in cases that we're seeing here in Michigan? And do you think things are getting better or worse in the pandemic? We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today. 